Let's pray. Lord, we uh, thank you uh, for such for being such a loving God, and we ask, Lord, that as um, things just happen towards this uh, season, uh, a lot of difficult times occur during this time, and I'm not sure why, uh, but just with uh, families and uh, dealing with things. Um, I pray, Lord, that you would uh, bless our church so that we would be able to minister to the, the various needs, the many needs of our body. And Lord, as we uh, talk about Christmas, that you would um, impart to us the true meaning behind it. In Jesus' name, amen. Christmas, uh, I guess summed up, it's about Jesus. And uh, I guess I could end there. Um, and that would be it. But, you know, in, in years past, uh, I've, I've preached through a lot of different types of things about uh, Christmas. So I've preached uh, about Joseph, about Mary. I've even preached about his grandmothers. Um, uh, I went through his lineage. We went through the different gospel accounts in the various years. Um, preached through the book of Hebrews. Preached the, through Isaiah about the prophecy and all these different things. Um, in regards to Christmas. One thing you won't get from me, though, is I'm not going to preach from the perspective of the donkey. I'm just not going to do that. I, if you've gone to a church that, that has done that before, I, I apologize for that teacher, pastor, preacher, whatever. I, that's just wrong. How can you preach from a donkey perspective? I, anyway, never mind. We're going to look at Galatians chapter 4 this morning, uh, verses 4 through 5, and um, it's going to be pretty heady at times, so I, I, I ask for your patience there and just for you to kind of to sink in there with me and put on that thinking helmet there. But let me just read these verses first and then we'll, we'll dive into it. Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 through 5. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were made under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. Now, not only do we find that Christmas is about Jesus, the entire Bible is about Jesus. Last week I, I mentioned some helpful ways as to uh, look at the Bible through that Jesus lens, that when you're looking through the Old Testament, you're looking at it as Jesus being prophesied. And when you look at the Gospels, you look at it as Jesus being made known. When you look at the book of Acts, it's Jesus being preached. When you look at the letters or the epistles, it's Jesus being explained. And when you look at the book of Revelation, it's Jesus being anticipated. And I also mentioned another way to look at the Bible, which is like a choose-your-own-adventure book where the answers are in the back. I really love those books and I really miss them. I'm going to read those to my daughters, and they probably won't like them because they like princesses. But, oh well. The Bible is similar to that. That you can find the outcomes in the New Testament, and you can work your way back and, and look for the start of it, and you're going to probably end up in the Old Testament. And then a, a third way to look at the Bible is, is like a two-act musical. right? Where, where one act is the Old Testament, the other act is the the New Testament, and, and you don't get the full story unless you see both acts, right? If you look at the first act and you don't see the second act, you don't know what happens. You're just kind of left hanging. If you look at the last act, but you don't look at the first act, you're left with a bunch of questions. You have no idea 
about some character development. You don't have any idea about how did this come about, and you have all these questions, and, and it's just those type of people that really bug you when they come into the middle of a movie and they start asking you a bunch of questions like, well, who this, and why that, and all this other stuff, like my mom, who I don't like watching movies with. Um, with my mom, uh, I, I really try to limit it to... to to watching movies with her because she'll ask me questions about movies that I haven't seen either and we're watching it for the first time together. It's a new one. And she'll ask me some stuff and I, I just make things up sometimes. Like, like whatever. So, so if you find yourself lost when you're reading the Bible, hopefully those are some ways that, that you can look at it and, and navigate through it and, and that'll, it'll help kind of like frame it for you. And perhaps some of you have read the Bible and you still find that things are in, inconsistent. You still find that things are unrealistic in there. And, and that there are contradictions of, in it. And, though, and that's for those of you who have read it. There are so many who haven't read it that are saying these type of things and making these assumptions of the Bible. And they haven't even read it. But for those of you that have, and, and it's still there, and, 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 and you're, you're still wondering you know, what, what it's about and what it's talking about. And, and, and you, know, you, you, you have all these thoughts that then they're not clear. I just want to encourage you that if you look deeper and if you dig deeper and you research more that the Bible is consistent. That the Bible is consistent through and through. And if you look at it through the lens of Jesus, it makes a lot more sense. You're going to find a lot more answers that way. And it can be summarized with this, the, the entire Bible, that the God of eternity... He determined, he planned, he purchased, he bought, he got a hold of a people whom he wanted to call his own. That's the Bible summary. Right? That, that the entire Bible is this unfolding drama of redemption. That God had this beautiful plan, he has this beautiful plan of redemption, and that's what the Bible presents to us. It's, it's his entire plan of redemption. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11, Paul wrote, In Him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him, who works all things according to the counsel of His will. What is Paul saying there? God has a purpose to what He has done, and He is coordinating all this stuff. He is orchestrating all this stuff, including the revelation of Himself. And it's in all this. All this is in accordance to His eternal plan. Now, why are we talking about this during the Christmas season? I mean, aren't we supposed to be talking about baby Jesus? Why isn't it about baby Jesus? The reason why is because I think, I think there are people who think that Christmas is not related to the Bible. That Christmas is totally separated from Christianity, that they've adopted it as their own thing, their own culture of, of a time of family get-togethers, of a time of exchanging gifts, and, and all of this stuff. And they do this with their life, for that matter. It's not just Christmas. Now, it, let me just kind of head off and try to give you the, uh, a picture here. It's like a puzzle. Okay, I, I have a, a, three, a four and three-quarter year old daughter and and yes the three quarters very important to her she will tell you i am four and three quarters and she really likes puzzles and she's really good at numbers so that's why she likes these fraction things it's really odd but as she went from three or maybe even younger two but let's just start at four so i don't have to go through all the fractions four four and a quarter four and a half four and three quarters 
she is getting progressively better and better at puzzles. So when she started at these puzzles, they weren't as challenging as the puzzles that she has now. And the way that she starts is she gets the corner pieces or she gets the edge pieces and she tries to frame it, right? And, and she tries to frame this stuff. And then, and then sometimes she finds these pieces in the middle that aren't edge pieces or aren't corner pieces, but they fit together. So she puts them together really quick, right? And we all do this, right? They're like, oh, look at this. Oh, look at Happy face or something. And so she gets these like five pieces or so put together. But you know what? She doesn't have a clue how that little piece fits into the entire picture. She doesn't have a clue. She just has this little piece right here. And the pieces that, that, that are found are the ones that go together. But she doesn't know how it goes in, in terms of the whole scheme of the puzzle. It's just this little picture. Now, now, if you don't know where and how these few pieces fit into the larger puzzle, wouldn't that, that little five-piece puzzle you've got together, pieced together, wouldn't that be kind of irrelevant? Like, you'd have no clue what this is for. Right? And especially when you're talking about an infinite God. You're talking about an infinite God who can't be contained, who doesn't have those borders. And sometimes we just have these little pieces because we have this enormous puzzle. And the more pieces that we put together of these smaller pieces, sometimes it's, it's just irrelevant. You have this huge puzzle and you come up with these little things and it's just irrelevant. And the puzzles that my daughter started out with a couple years ago, they had six pieces. Like a six-piece Elmo puzzle. Each humongous piece was really relevant. You know, you, you know exactly what it is. Each piece tells you what it is. But as she advances in this puzzle difficulty, each piece is less relevant to the whole puzzle. And so you think of God, this infinite puzzle without any borders, and, and we come up with these things. And how much more, is, more complex is that puzzle? How much more complex is the puzzle of life? How much more irrelevant are the pieces that we have figured out that don't have Jesus in them? And, and that's what I find many people do at Christmas, as well as in their lives. Right? That, that Jesus isn't in it. It's irrelevant. And, you, and they try to put these puzzle pieces together every year, year after year, year after year. Only that they, they, they put these little pieces together, but, but it's not the entire piece, it's not the entire puzzle, but they just put it back into the box again. And then the following year they dump out the box again, they make these little pieces again. And they just keep doing that year after year, year after year. F- little pieces, irrelevant pieces, small pieces. But the smaller pieces don't make any sense because it doesn't fit into to the grand scheme of things. So some people pull out all, all the puzzles and then they make this little picture of a manger. Or a little sheep or a wise man's robe or, or this little snippet of the nativity. And maybe you even have that whole nativity scene figured out because I see a lot of it in people's homes. But how does that fit into this unfolding drama of redemption that God has for us? How does it fit into the larger picture of eternity? And many, many people don't know how the nativity fits into the grand scheme of things. They just say, oh, it's cute. This is what Christmas is about. It's about that little baby there. But well, yeah, but what about that baby? And even though they see that scene there year after year, year after year, it, it, it doesn't mean anything. And that's how often Christmas is viewed. 
It's often a day that is, is cut short of its entire meaning, and the truth behind it is lost. And it's just a small puzzle piece that is ma- that's been made into this season of consumption, into this season of, of commercialization. And at best, at best, it's a season of cheap sentiments. People want to get together to exchange gifts, and there, there are so many who have these nativity scenes in their homes, and they don't even know why that scene is significant, yet it's inside their house. How do I know that? Because I have a lot of relatives that have it in their house, and they have no idea what it is. I have a lot of friends that fall into this category, and they have no idea what it is. It's just Christmas time. It's time to put up a tree and lights in a nativity scene. It's, it's being sold at Costco, so you get it, and you put it up. But they don't know what it signifies, and, and they don't know what it means, and it, it's totally disconnected from the bigger picture. It's this little little puzzle piece that doesn't make any sense to them. It has no relevance to them. It's just this thing, and they have no idea how it fits into the larger scheme of things. And I said that at best that Christmas is, is to those with just a few pieces, it's just a cheap sentiment. What do I mean by that? Well, some people want to make it more than consumption. Some people want to make it more than commercialization. So they want to attach something that's really good to it, whether it's giving or receiving, and that this year's a good time of year to appeal to to people's giving spirits and vulnerable giving spirits at that. And so there's this mass asking of of things, of donations, of, of materials. And I don't know how much mail you guys get during this time of year, but I get a ton. I get a ton of people asking me for something. And my question for them is, where were you the rest of the year? Why, why weren't you my friend back then? You know, why weren't... Why? And it really bothers... This is... I'm just going to go off a little bit here. Off to the side. This really bugs me. Right? That if you're only interested in me because I can give you something, that bugs the heck out of me. It's like I never existed unless I have something to offer you. Right? And, and you know that there are these people in these organizations who are saying the right things, they're doing the right things and, because you're a potential donor. But then as soon as, as, as you put your position down as, like, I'm not going to be able to do that, they're out the door. Like they've never been a part of your life. That bugs the heck out of me. I have people coming into the church. They want to raise these funds or whatever and they want to, oh, they want to treat us nice and they want to do all this stuff they want to serve and they want to do all this stuff but as soon as we're like oh this year or this season we're not going to be able to they're out the door i can't even find them anymore like you're just you were just using us right you weren't you weren't wanting to be a part of our, our community here anyway i'm done with that so a lot of of giving and a lot of receiving during christmas season it's built on guilt right it's totally built on guilt Right? People in organizations, that they rally around Christmas and they have coat drives and they have food drives. They adopt a family or, or fund this children's hospital or research and all this. And they have cute slogans like peace on earth or end war, end hunger, or end whatever else. And is that what Christmas is really about, though? Is that what it's about? It's not, right? It's, it's just kind of preying on this time of year where people are a little bit more vulnerable to giving. It's just preying on guilt. And Christmas is not about an appeal. That's what it's not. It's not, a, it's not a time for people to be preyed on to do something good once a year by pushing their guilt button. 
Christmas is a proclamation of good news and joy for everyone. Right? And what is the nature of this good news? Where and how does this piece fit into the big puzzle? And you recall that in the epistles or the letters that Jesus is explained. That's how you can memorize it in your mind. Jesus is explained. And what we have in Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 and 5 is a summary statement. It's a summary statement to help us see the bigger picture. Let me read that to you once again. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And again, I'm sorry to burst your bubbles if you were just here to hear about baby Jesus. I, uh, I like baby Jesus, but, but we're just going to talk about this this morning. Put your thinking caps on. <clears throat> Here we go. This is really simple stuff, but it's really deep. And, and you might have to think a little bit here. Now this is the good news about Jesus. Right? This is the good news about Jesus. This isn't about anything for us to do. So many times people make Christmas a thing about for something for us to do. And it's not. This is all about what God has done. Not for anything we do. This has nothing to do with feelings of guilt, of doing, of giving something. This is all about what has God offered us. This is something that God has done. Christmas is not about the demands made on us because of the season. Right? And us responding to those demands. And may we not miss the fact that Christmas is about God's proclamation, about His good news, is about God's offer to us. It's not about us being appealed to do something. It's not a demand for us to give something. Verse 4, let's just, just break it into chunks. But when the fullness of time had come, and this word fullness is really important here, Paul is establishing for us the time factor in relation to the coming of Jesus. Jesus incarnate. Not Jesus, God Jesus. He is eternal. Jesus incarnate. So when we ask, when did Jesus come? Jesus is eternal, right? He has always been. However, Jesus incarnate, Jesus in the flesh, came when the fullness of time had come. The fullness of time. When did God send Jesus in the flesh? When the fullness of time had come. Meaning, when God had determined when Jesus would come. That's when He came. When God wanted Him to. God didn't send Jesus at some random time. He didn't say, oh, He slipped away. I guess He's coming then. He didn't do that, right? He, He planned His arrival out. He planned it all out. And it's not too early. It's not too soon. He came when the fullness of time had come. God's timing is not off. It is perfect. Paul wrote in Romans chapter 5, verse 6, For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Some may question when Jesus was sent. Right? Wouldn't it make more sense to send Jesus now? With all the satellite networks, with the internet, with the mass media capabilities, with all the technology that we have, wouldn't it make more sense to send Jesus now? When most people of the world can know about Jesus in minutes, wouldn't it have made more sense to send him now? Why 2,000 years ago? No. 
2,000 years ago was the perfect time. God sent Jesus at the exact moment of when Jesus had to come. And to a less extensive scale, God did send Jesus at an opportune time. Because if you think about the technology of that day, if you think about the things in place in those days, right? Roman Empire. The Roman Empire is in power. They built these roads throughout the Roman Empire that would make travel easier, that would make travel safer, safer than even our streets. So they had these things in place there, right? That they could travel in safety and with relative ease from Jerusalem to the entire Roman Empire. You also had the Greek language. A language that unified, that was a common language for the people within there. So the gospel message could be consistent. Right? There was no Wycliffe Bible translators back then. They had Greek. And people spoke it. So, and this was also a time when people had all these gods, these pagan gods, these Roman gods, these Greek gods, all these different types of gods. And they were bombarded by all these religious beliefs. And there was an openness to Christianity. There was an openness because, because they were getting kind of tired of this stuff. Like, this isn't doing me any good. Jesus came at a pretty good time, don't you think? With the Roman Empire influence, with the Greek influences, with the people's kind of uh, worldviews being questioned and not, not knowing what's going on. And Jesus came when the law of Moses accomplished the work of people getting ready for Jesus. Right? Take a look at Galatians chapter 3, verses 23 and 24. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. When did God send Jesus? When the fullness of time had come. And when all the preparation for His arrival was done. Was that done? Galatians chapter 4, verse 4. What was done? Here it is. God sent. That was what? So we have the when and we have the what. God sent forth His Son just at the right time. God didn't send an ideology. God didn't send some apparition or some phantom. God sent His Son in the flesh. And in order to understand the work of Jesus Christ and how that relates to the will of the Father, we have to have a little understanding of the Trinity. That God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit are co-equal and they are co-eternal. That in eternity, which is pre-time, which is pre-incarnation, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit entered into a covenant with one another and they determined with each other that the Son would be the Savior for the people's sins. That the Son, the Christ, submitted to His Father in obedience and when the fullness of time had come, the Son was obedient to the will of the Father and He delighted in doing the will of the Father and He was sent. The Son, Jesus, by entrusting God the Father would have this role of Savior. And God the Father would sustain him while he was living on the earth in a fleshly form. And God the Father would also give his son this reward of, of seeing his purpose and his fulfillment in redeeming people to himself. Now some of you may be asking, what, what does this have to do with anything with Christmas? A lot. 
What makes the nativity scene significant at Christmas can only be fully understood by finding these other pieces of the puzzles that complete the entire picture. Right? People that reject the Christmas story probably do so because they feel that, that it's an irrelevant story. This baby thing, that's irrelevant. It's all about us giving gifts to each other. It's all about us loving each other and serving each other and doing good things for each other. That, that there's nothing to be offered to them. That they've created this own thing that they want to offer themselves. But what if we made Christmas more than just buying gifts with money that you don't have or getting together with relatives you don't like or don't really want to be with or giving things that you really don't want to give? What if we included a story about how the triune creator God had a plan established in the eternal realm to send his son at the fullness of time to redeem the world? Isn't that a lot more meaningful? That his son who delighted to do the will of his father's will, he chose to die for us, right? Read Philippians chapter 2 verses 5 through 11. You could do that on your own. Jesus wasn't forced to or manipulated to die for us. He did it willingly. They came up with that plan, that, that eternal plan way back when, whenever that was, outside of time. So we have some questions that have been answered about Christmas, right? When was this? When the fullness of time had come. What and who was this? God sent was what? Who was His Son? God sent forth His Son. And now we get to how was this? How did this all happen? How did all this metaphysical stuff happen? Well, we're told that he was born of woman and we're, that he was born under the law. Born of woman, telling us that Jesus was indeed human. Right? He was a real man who lived in Jerusalem and Judea. He walked those streets. He wasn't this figment of people's imagination. He's a real guy that existed in the history of the world. He was a person who had the same biochemistry, the same anatomy, the same physiology as you and I do. Have you ever really thought about that? That he has the same cells that you and I do. That all that all the stuff happening in us, neurologically, physiologically, happened with Jesus. Therefore, he felt the same things that we felt, including pain. Including hurt, including emotional things. He was born of a woman, meaning, meaning his biological mother, Mary. It means that Mary contributed her DNA to her son, Jesus. Half of her chromosomes are in him. And then the other half is this mysterious and creative act of the virgin conception. This is just crazy stuff, isn't it? Have you ever really thought about this? This is nuts. And if you're not a Christian, you're probably, you're, you're probably thinking, you guys are nuts. You guys are crazy to believe this stuff. And if you are a Christian, you're probably thinking, I didn't know I was this crazy to believe this stuff. This is crazy. Right? And I have a question for you. Who would ever invent this? Who would ever create this in their mind? Right? If this weren't true, how would you even think about this? Oh, I have an idea. Let's make up this crazy, create the craziest story we can ever think of, and we'll preach it, and everyone will follow. Right? It, and I know that there is crazy stuff out there that, that people believe to be true, but how much of it of that stuff that is made up and so crazy has been proven to be false. Like a turtle upholding the earth. 
Right? Like, like people used to believe that. Uh, people used to, people believe that Christianity stuff too. But, you know, we can prove that the turtle doesn't hold up the earth. We have satellite photos and stuff. But when you look at Jesus, when you look at Christianity, let's just take the resurrection, for example. Crazy. If the resurrection can be proven false, Christianity is done. I am not a Christian if the resurrection is proven false. There's no reason for me to be. Yet it hasn't been. Yet you have the tombs of Muhammad, you have the tombs of Buddha and other key religious figures in their religion. But where is Jesus' tomb? I guess there's arguments about where it is, but it's empty. Right? To disprove Christianity, all you have to do is disprove the resurrection. That's it. If you disprove that, you lose everybody. Right? And it's such a crazy idea that someone can raise from the dead. Isn't that easy to prove? He's dead. Right? And, and so there were so many antagonists during that time in that Jewish community. Don't you think that if that weren't true, that would have been easily shown to be false? You have guards at the tomb, right? That these, these guards, that if, if they fell asleep during their guard, they would be killed. These are serious guards here. They, they were looking for the disciples. And these disciples, you have Peter running from a junior high girl. Do you really think that Peter would go into the tomb, fight those guards, and pull Jesus out? And Jesus, he was stabbed. Liquid was coming out of his side. He was pierced on the cross. He died there. And even if he did not die, and he made it, do you think he would show himself victorious in the book of Acts? Hey guys, follow me. Or how would someone come up with such confidence and being fully healed to tell people to, to have the day of Pentecost and have all these thousands of people get saved, to have himself show himself to people that, hey, I'm fully healthy. Yeah, I got some holes in my arm, but I'm, I'm good. People wouldn't follow some like half-baked guy like, oh yeah, I, I made it, guys. Go out there and preach about me. They wouldn't do that. Now if you read the first three chapters of Galatians, it will help us interpret the verses that we're looking at this morning. And if it's taken out of context, you're going to go off to left field. But looking at these phrases, born under the law, in chapter 4, verse 4, we have, we have to read the previous chapters to understand this phrase, and we don't have time to do that. But in chapter 3, much was said about the law of Moses. And it was summarized in the Ten Commandments. Now, in in chapter 4, verse 4, we're told that when God comes to earth in the person of Jesus Christ, He is born of a woman. He has a human mother. He lives a human existence. He is born under the law, meaning that He is under the jurisdiction of the law of God. He does not have the freedom to do whatever He wants. He is under the law of God. Jesus was here to do everything that the law demanded. He was subject to the law. And because he followed the law perfectly, he can represent us as his people. No one in history can do that except for the one that can hold the law perfectly. It's only Jesus. Only by him do you enter into his father's house. Why? Because only he was perfect. Only he was able to represent us before a holy God. Only he was able to live under the law perfectly. No one else could take our penalty because if they broke the law, that they're gone. They, they, they can't do it. 
The only one not to break the law was Jesus. He's the only exception. So when people have these thoughts of like, oh, how come you say he's the only one? He's, he's the only way. That's so like, you know, you're judge, judging everybody else. You're judging all the other religions and all this stuff. I'm, we're not judging. We're simply, say, we're simply taking the holy God's word, his holy law, his, his, his law, and saying the only person that can do it is someone that would uphold the law perfectly. If there were somebody else, they could do it too. So Jesus takes the penalty of our sin and, and He's the only one that can fill, fulfill that role as our substitute. And Jesus can't be our substitute unless He was sinless. That's why there is no other way. He's the only sinless one. And He can't be our Savior if He's unable to take that penalty of our sin. Now when we look at this nativity scene on Christmas, do we see that? Do we see a holy God? Do we see a holy Savior? Do we see perfection? Someone who held the law to perfection? Do we see Jesus who lived a perfect life so that He could take the penalty of our sins? Who, who died so that we wouldn't have to die this everlasting death? Please don't cheapen Christ, Christmas by thinking it's, it's a time to be nicer. Or it's a time to be more generous. That, that, that it's a time... To, to raise more money or to raise more food or to give more clothing or, or whatever that is. Li- live knowing that Jesus lived and died for you that you may have everlasting life. And that it's always a good time to be like Jesus. Not just once a year. Right? And when you look at Galatians chapter 3, verses 15-22, through 22, Paul was writing to the Galatians. And in verse 16 there, Paul is writing about God's promise to Abraham. That all the nations of the earth will be blessed by Abraham's offspring. And the promise that God made to Abraham was this unconditional pro- promise. No strings attached. It didn't cost him a thing. There was nothing he had to do to earn it. It was God's gift to him. Then we get to chapter 3 verse 17 where Paul wrote, The law, this is the law given to Moses, was given 430 years afterward does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. Now, if a promise was given to Abraham and a law was given to Moses, how do those things go together? Is it a promise to be accepted unconditionally or is it a, a law that has to be obeyed? How can this promise and this law, how can they go together? Isn't that impossible? And that's what Paul is writing about. You look at chapter 3, verse 18 in Galatians. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Why then the law? Why do we need the law if there's this promise? Why did God give the promise to Abraham only to give this law of Moses later on, 430 years later? Because things have to get worse before they get better. Okay? The law exposes sin. The law exposes our sin. If you think you are a good person and that you are just fine, that you know, I'm, I'm good to people, I'm, you know, I, I'm fine, I, I, I don't steal, I don't do these other things, just read Exodus 20. Read Exodus 20, and after you read the law of God and what it reveals to you, you're going to break one of those ten laws. You are. We're all jacked up. 
All of us. All of us are lawbreakers. Right? We're all sinners. And it says that you, you are to have no other gods before you. Let's just take one commandment, because I think most of us fail at this one. Have no other gods before you. Do you put yourself before God? Do you put your spouse before God? Do you put your children before God? Do we put our finances before God? Do we put our careers before God? Do you trust in any other thing before God? Anything. See, the law exposes your sin and it condemns it. Do you put your security in something other than God? Yourself. God's promise to Abraham is fulfilled in Jesus Christ, and the law given to Moses is also fulfilled by Jesus Christ. The law wasn't given to give salvation to us. It was given to prove to us that we need salvation. That's why the law was given. And there are many who don't believe that a Savior is necessary. Right? You go out to the streets... I, you go out to this, and when we do evangelistic things, or we when we share the gospel, when we preach and stuff, I have never heard someone say and come up to me. You know what? I need a savior. In the years that I commuted on Bart to go to work, I have never heard someone just have a conversation with me. You know what? I I need a savior. You will never hear that. Most people think that they're just fine. And if we as a church just talk about God's promise, that Jesus is our Savior, it won't do much good if people don't know that they need to be saved. Right? How many laws have we broken? And breaking those laws, how do we stand before a holy God? And if people don't see their sin, if they don't know that they need a Savior, Jesus. Right? If, if you don't know you're sick, you don't know that you need a doctor. There's no reason to go to the hospital. So when was this? When the fullness of time had come? What and who was this? God sent forth His Son. How was this? Born of a woman, born under the law. And why was this? It's verse 5. To redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. This is the good news. Jesus redeems us from that guilty verdict so that we don't have to live under that penalty of being a lawbreaker. Right, taking that penalty of sin upon Himself. The only one that could take it upon Himself. And we can't understand Christmas without understanding the cross. We put so much emphasis on the manger, but let's not lose sight of the cross. People think it's all about the manger, but the redemption doesn't happen without the cross. Will you live with God who is in heaven, or will you live without God, which is hell? And when you look at Jesus in the nativity scene, what do you see? What do you see there? Doing good things? Being more generous? Being more nice? Buying stuff? Not buying stuff? Don't cheapen it like that. When you see the baby in the manger, do you see the one who has taken the penalty that we deserve? Even as a baby. And that's not happy news because when you see a baby, you just smile and you want to hold them and you, or her and you just want to cuddle. And, and this isn't your typical happy Christmas message because when you look at that baby, you're looking at a baby that's going to die for us. Now there are a few groups to address. 
Group A hasn't trusted in Jesus, and part of it is that they, they've never had the law preached to them. You don't know you're a sinner. And people hate this. People hate that their sin is exposed. People hate that they're, that they're being exposed and shown and that they're a lawbreaker. But the truth of the matter is, that's how you know you need a Savior. That's how you know you're sick. If you don't know you're sick, you don't know you need a doctor. If you don't know you have sin, you don't know that you need a Savior. So there, there are some who don't really need, need the promise as much as they need the law. They need the law exposed to them because you, if you don't, you don't even know that you need a promise. So some people need the law exposed to them. Right? Some of you need the law so that your sin can be exposed so that you can turn to Jesus. And we stand before a holy God and we often need to be broken. We need to be broken so that we can recognize God's grace. We can recognize God's forgiveness. And without that breaking, you don't, need, you don't know that you need a physician. You have nothing broken. You just go fine. You're fine. You don't need anything. And so people go around walking like, hey, I don't need your God. I'm totally fine. You need Him because you broke the law. Those people need the law. They don't need the promise. They don't need to know about a Savior yet. Because they don't even know that they need Him. They need to be exposed of their sin. And this is really tough for some of you because you don't like doing this. But the truth of the matter is that some of them need to be exposed. And until we are broken, we don't know that we need a healer. Until we know that we are in bondage, we don't, need, we, we don't know that we need to approach Jesus to be set free. Until we are in despair, we don't, need, we don't know that we need to trust in Jesus to deliver us from that. And if we don't ever experience those places, if we don't ever experience the brokenness, that emptiness, that, that we're a sinner, why would we ever need to cry out to God? You don't. If you were perfect, of course you'd trust in yourself. Right? If you, did, if you were not a lawbreaker, of course you'd trust in yourself. Why wouldn't you? But we all know how messed up we are that we can't trust in ourselves, and that's just foolish too. Right? So of course things are going to be difficult. Of course we're going to experience pain, suffering, hurt. Otherwise we wouldn't even know that we need a God. But as long as we cheapen Christmas by thinking that if we do good things, that we, that we give things away, that, that we give coats to kids once a year, or sleeping bags to people and all this stuff, and doing things once a year, buying things for people, supporting organizations, we are fooling ourselves about Christmas. And I'm not saying that those things are wrong, and I'm not saying those things are bad, because we actually do them. But I think that we're a little different in that we don't do it once a year. When we give sleeping bags is when it's cold. We don't wait for Christmas. It's been cold for like two months. All of a sudden you're going to give sleeping bags? All of a sudden people get hungry at Christmas time? Aren't they hungry all year long? So like this is, this is weird to me. That we, we don't lose sight of Christmas and that, that we take it in a direction that, that we, we created. We created those things. Oh, we want to give now. Shouldn't you be giving like Jesus all year long? Why is it right now? Why are we giving coats now? It's been cold for a long time. Right? Why are we doing the things now? Don't cheapen it. Now group B is on the other side of the law. Group B has had the law preached to them over and over. This group needs promise. 
This group needs the promise of Abraham. This group is enslaved to the law, and they need to be reminded that the law doesn't save. Jesus saves. Right? This is the group that has been hurt by the church in that they've been brainwashed to believe that righteousness can be earned. That if they do the right things and, and say the right things and portray the right things, they can earn righteousness. And instead of directing people to Jesus, you're driving people to despair because you're pushing them more towards the law. And I know a lot of these people because I'm one of them. This is my background. Self-righteous, committed to rules, striving to follow them, don't do anything wrong. You know, just, just put on this good facade. See, God gave the law not so that we can prove ourselves holier than other people, but to prove that we are sinners. It's not a license to show like, look how good I'm upholding. Right? It's to show that you're a sinner. The law isn't there to make us live these holier-than-thou lives. It's not to make us holy. It's to reveal our sin. And when we see the law for what it really is, we can see why Jesus came. Who would ever look for God in a manger? Who would ever look for God on a cross? So there, there might be some group A folks here where you wander in and out of church, not knowing how sinful, how rebellious you are before God because you haven't really ever taken the law seriously. And you keep wandering and you're fine with the state that you're in and, and the true meaning of Christmas is pretty irrelevant to you. There are group B folks probably in here as well, right? where the law has been preached to you so much that you believe that you can actually live up to it. And you've become more self-righteous. There's also a group C. And this is a group that has recognized a need for a Savior. Where the promise made to Abraham was also offered to you. And that's by simply coming to Jesus and accepting his gift of salvation, you are saved. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the promise that you gave to Abraham. And you gave that first. You gave us that plan of redemption first. And then you gave us the law of Moses to show how far we are from being with a holy God. To expose our sin. And you gave us Jesus to redeem us from that plan you made to Abraham way back when. Thank you, Lord. And I pray, Lord, that we wouldn't cheapen Christmas by doing things that we've created from our own culture, from our own backgrounds and things like that, Lord. That when we look at Christmas, that we see that you sent your only Son to redeem us, Lord, who was born under the law, who was born of woman. You sent, them at, you sent him at the fullness of time to redeem us. In Jesus' name, amen.